and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Best-selling novelist and historian Paul French is in town for a couple of weeks and is busy with this year's Hong Kong International Literary Festival. The festival is back in full force with international and local writers and plenty of Hong Kong themes. So do have a look at what's on. Paul French has collaborated with Blacksmith Books to bring you the inaugural three books in a series called China Revisited. So that's writers who came to this area. So not Beijing or Shanghai. Paul introduces and annotates these lesser-known travel writing books that focus on Hong Kong, Macau, and Guangdong. His first three writers are young American Harry Hervey, travel writer Constance Gordon Cumming, and American missionary Benjamin Couch Henry or B.C. Henry. Here's a bit of Harry Hervey to give us a taste. Few are they who have not climbed the jade staircase of fancy to dreams spun by that word. Ivory and cedar wood and silks and tall junks cargoed with spices and women. The first time I saw its coast was in the early morning. The raw air of the north had been healed by soft tropical winds. To the landward, a reflected hazy light smoldered on the sea, stretched like a golden atrium to the hills that bosomed the shore. Bare somber hills and brown as rust. The hills of Han, that they were part of China, a place so intimate in my fancy, seemed incredible, a thrilling mirage, result of the warm, heady sunlight that I drank in so fiercely. China. Ivory and cedar wood and silks. A sweet delirium stole into me. I yearned for extravagant adventure, a role in revolutionary intrigue, or some equally preposterous hazard. I'll be joining Paul French next Sunday, March the 12th, and Professor of English Literature Julia Kuhn to launch China Revisited at the festival and talk about these rediscovered pieces of travel writing from the 1880s to the 1920s in southern China. I caught up with Paul last week in the UK to hear about these first three authors and what got him onto this new series, China Revisited. Here in London, I work in the London Library, which is a fantastic resource that's been around for several hundred years in St. James's. And it has one of the most incredible collections of travel writing dating back to the Victorian era. And I spend a lot of time avoiding writing what I'm supposed to be doing and browsing <laughs> through the shelves looking at, at various old travel writing. And what I found was that not only was this a fantastic collection of books that were very hard to find sometimes and all sorts of things would pop out, but also that wasn't really necessarily a good idea to reprint the whole of the books. They're often very long. They often go off in very meandering, boring passages. They're often somewhat politically incorrect these days and, and just you don't really need to read all of that. Um, but there were little nuggets, little sort of diamonds in the dirt that were worth pulling out. So abridging it and then annotating it so you could understand contemporary names versus older names and, and references and putting them together in smaller books just to sort of pull out the gems of these books. You know, I've read them all to save you having to do that and giving you the best <laughs> bits, hopefully. So that was one of the tasks you were supposed to do in the London Library? Well, not really, but I mean, it sort of uh, it did end up passing quite a nice afternoon every now and again. And, and as I say, some of these books are quite long and you don't really need to read them all or reprint them all. You can reprint them quite cheaply just by taking the best bits that are useful to us now. Yeah, so these books, some of which are over 100 years old, the, the three that I've got in front of me, if I say that it's Where Strange Gods Call, 
So this is Harry Hervey's 1920s Hong Kong, Macau and Canton sojourns. Then there's wanderings in China, Hong Kong and Canton, Christmas and New Year, 1878, 1879. And that's by Constance Gordon Cumming and Ling Nam, Hong Kong, Canton and Hainan Island in the 1880s by Benjamin Couch or B.C. Henry. And uh, you chose these three, partly also perhaps because they're less well-known or less well-covered previously, would you say? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, there's always reprints going on. And certainly when it comes to China, Isabella Bird, who's quite wonderful, Mm. gets reprinted quite a lot. And so did the French sisters, no relation, also get reprinted quite a lot. And I thought some of these have been slightly lost And yet they all, each one of them has a particular contemporary reason, I think, that that will interest historians or or just people interested in particularly Hong Kong, southern China. There's something in there that's important and we should sort of have for reference and for our own researches on, on work that everybody's doing now or just out of interest if you live in contemporary Hong Kong or southern China. All three of them are at a time when not everybody's going to be friendly to foreigners. No, that's certainly true. They're, they're also at sort of three cataclysmic moments as well. Constance Gordon Cumming just happens to turn up on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in 1878, when, of course, a great fire ripped through Hong Kong and so totally wiped out mid-levels as it was. So the mid-levels that people know now is really a creation of that area after that fire. That live long night we stood or sat on the veranda watching this appallingly magnificent scene. The flames rising and falling, leaping and dancing, now bursting from some fresh house, shooting up in tongues of fire, now rolling in dense volumes of black smoke. Now it was a paraffin store which blazed with fierce light, and a moment later... A New Year's store of fireworks were all aflame, shooting and exploding all on their own account. From house to house and from street to street, the beautiful, terrible fire demon swept on its destroying path, for the flames, now fanned by a keen breeze, rushed hungrily on, sometimes sweeping right across the street to devour the opposite houses, sometimes, for some reason, utterly incomprehensible, working right around a block, leaving one or two houses in the very heart of the conflagration, utterly untouched. B.C. Henry was a missionary, but what's very important about him, apart from knowing Guangzhou, Canton, very well, is that he was really the first foreigner to write in depth about Hainan Island, which, which of course, is a place lots of people go. And Harry Hervey was really just a traveller and a a novelist at the time. And he happened to stumble into, through various contacts of his, an interview with Sun Yat-sen. Here's Harry Hervey meeting Sun Yat-sen. As I waited, wrapped about with silence, I felt a thrilling intimacy with intrigue. It was a setting of melodrama. The long cabinet room, the leaden sky, heavy with swollen clouds and the scarred warship in midstream, awaiting any emergency. Suddenly, a man in khaki moved out quickly from behind a screen in the far end. He advanced toward me, smiling, a gleam in his friendly eyes, and I realised that he was the Doctor of Canton. 
When Harry Hervey meets Sun Yat-sen, he's only in his early 20s. And as we find out from Paul later, he's more a novelist than a writer of fact and politics. So his usual way of writing is full of drama and pirates where he can fit them in. So here's this young American in southern China. And in his book, Where Strange Gods Call, you can also read about how he starts off in Hong Kong before venturing north. As the ship warped in at the Kowloon docks, Sampans drifted alongside, maneuvered by sexless-looking creatures whose shrill, attenuated voices proclaimed them women. In some of the boats were bamboo cages overcrowded with squawking birds, yellow-crested cockatoos, and gray and pink parrots. It was a charming scene until I perceived that the sampan women were there for a twofold purpose, to salvage the swill emptied from the ship as well as to market their feathery merchandise. Now you're about to to come to Hong Kong, Paul. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, being with you and uh, Julia Kuhn at the, it's about the cheapest place in the world to fly to at the moment. Is it? <laughs> so you're going to be on at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, they've they've managed to keep the literary festival going throughout COVID the last couple of years as a internet only event and then a hybrid event. And this year we're getting back to. Um, face-to-face and audience events. So uh, that's fantastic. It's just nice to be able to travel out there again. So you're going to be doing a variety of events, actually, not just the one that I'm involved with you, where we're going to be talking about these travel writers. You're off to Macau. You're doing all sorts. Yeah, I think there's like a a bottled-up demand in um, Hong Kong, because also I said I'd do a few schools, and they've come back and said you can do about 20 schools. And um, I'm doing some events around uh, how to get published that I've been asked to do and workshops on researching Chinese family history and things like that or histories of your family in China. So, yeah, there seems to be a lot of demand to do things. And again, over in Macau and up at Hong Kong University Library. And I think everyone's probably fed up of staying indoors and being on Zooms and wants to get back to doing things and seeing people that don't live around the corner again. <laughs> Here's Benjamin Couch Henry or BC Henry. Government House occupies a conspicuous site overlooking the harbour and town beneath and is surrounded by broad parks and gardens. Many splendid roads lead to the upper parts of the town, shaded by evergreen arches which the interlacing branches of the ever-present banyan have woven. Profusely flowering creepers and tree ferns of wondrous size and grace overhang the walls and line the walks that lead up ravines where art has assisted nature, not only in confining the wayward mountain brook to its rock-bound channel, but in bringing more plants to mingle with the native beauties. These, with opportune seats in secluded nooks, offer cool retreats from the heat of a tropical sun. Benjamin Couch, or B.C. Henry, I hadn't actually heard of. Now, he was a missionary, a very devout missionary, who spends about 20 years in southern China. And Ling Nam is his second book. And, is, and you found that that's it's more of a... It's, it's useful to somebody who it sounds like it's sort of more travel writing than perhaps religious doctrine, would you say? Yes, I mean, Henry Henry is a missionary and large amounts of his writings are about saving souls around China, which I don't know if he was particularly good at, but he he was very good at collecting plants and writing about places. So just try to extract 
those useful pieces. And if anyone wants to do a series of writings of missionaries talking about doing missionary work, then they're, they're welcome to go and get <laughs> Ling Nam off the shelf and, and dig it out. But I didn't think that that was particularly interesting. But he does have really the first the first detailed account we have of in English of, of Hainan Island, uh, which I think is useful. And he also does a, a wonderful... He spent most of his time in China in Canton, Guangzhou, and he's, he does a wonderful sort of walk through, descriptive walk through Canton, which I think is made up. It's a composite, really, of many, many walks, but he, he writes it as one sort of flowing walk. And it's, it's really quite immersive of a Guangzhou that would just about last until when Harry Hervey goes in the mid-1920s and then in the 1930s changes completely under Governor Chen Jitong, the sort of great reformer and modernizer of Guangzhou. And so we're getting a glimpse of a, of, of a city that, that's very you know, febrile and teeming and revolutionary and, and close-knit. And that, that's not a city that we would find overly familiar if we went to Guangzhou now. Now, what does Lingnam mean? Lingnam is a sort of a, a term that's become a bit arcane now, but it just literally means Ling, mountain, Nam, south in, in, in Cantonese. It was used as a phrase for if you were going to... Canton to Guangzhou, you would you would Lingnam. Um, it, it, it was used as a phrase that way, so it refers to southern China, essentially, including really Hong Kong and Macau as well. And and so it was a term that was used in the, in that era, but has sort of slipped out of usage since. Now Benjamin Couch Henry, where does he come from in America? He came from Pennsylvania, and he went to China in 1873 and stayed for just over 20 years, which is not a bad run given how many of them succumbed to various diseases and madness and, and falling off the sides of boats and, and various other things. I mean, he lasted 20 years and did go home again. But he seems to have spent most of his time as a, either a teaching at universities, teaching divinity, or going around looking for plants and collecting plants to send back to various collectors, particularly in the United States. So he was a, an amateur botanist, or would you have said he was quite professional at it? Well, he, he was good friends with another amateur botanist who was a, who was a British consul general in, in Guangzhou at the time, and he, he rated him very highly. There is, a, there is a rhododendron named after him called Henry's Red, which is a very low-maintenance rhododendron. You can, I can grow it here in the south of England. Uh, it grows all over America, uh, but it's native to southern China. And it's a very beautiful, very colourful rhododendron. And the Horticultural Society decided, uh, agreed that it could be named after him after that was suggested by the, by the British Consul General in Guangzhou. So he has a certain level of immortality in the rhododendron world. <laughs> I mean, you were describing how, you know, he is part travelogue and, and you're, he, he takes you on this tour of, of Guangzhou at that time. So you're talking in the 1870s, 80s. But you suspect that he actually plants himself in the story. Yes, I think he does. He sort of um, shows himself uh, wandering around collecting. It's a, that's a very popular thing to do in travel writing now, but it, it, was, it wasn't so much at the time. It was, travel writing was usually memoir or just descriptive. And, and he seeds himself throughout. And when he goes to Hainan, uh, which he refers to as the island of palms, which obviously if you've been to Hainan, you, you can see that. It's very tropical. He has these wonderful descriptions of it. And, and if, if for people who I know, there's a lot of people in Hong Kong who always look for very much connections between southern China or the very south of China there at Hainan and Southeast Asia, seeing it having more in common with that, at least botanically and, and horticulturally than, than with sort of, you know, northern China, central China. He's, he's very, very good on making those linkages. Now, he gets married. He has at least, I think, two children. 
in China? Yes, I think he had a very happy life in China and he enjoyed it very much. And I think he, he stayed there until he eventually um, uh, returned to America to carry on teaching. He wrote several books, of which Ling Nam is, is the biggest book and, and the most useful to us. The rest are, are really on divinity and, and, and guides to other missionaries. There's always these people trying to say, um, for instance, he does all these long uh, sessions on how to explain the concept of the Holy Ghost to, to the Chinese, how to explain the concept of limbo and eternal hellfire to, to the Chinese. And if you're interested in that, then um, he's written all about it. But uh, his great contribution is this descriptions of Canton that he does and this description, the earliest one we have really, from the early 18, although the book's published in 1886, his description of Hainan is from the early 1880s. So, so it's really the first we have. As he goes into the 1890s, though, I think he's getting, uh, it seems that he's getting increasingly nervous about being in China. Yes, I mean, everyone is at these points of conflagration, which I'm interested in. Obviously, Constance Gordon's coming walks into probably the worst fire uh, Hong Kong's ever had. Harry Hervey, in the 1920s, walks into a China that is divided and it's in civil war, basically, between the North and the South, with Sun Yat-sen in charge of the Southern government in a massive military dispute with, with warlords and the Northern Chinese government. And B.C. Henry is there at a time when you know, the Qing dynasty is starting to fall apart. It's starting to, to come to its end. There's the rise of uh, nationalistic movements that will culminate in years with the um, Boxer uprising in northern China. So he, he, is, he is seeing a, a fractured China. And of course, this is part of the interesting narrative that we see of people who experienced China at that time, that they see China very much less as the sort of monolithic, solid whole that we do today, and which it arguably is. And they see it much more as a fractured, splintering, possibly about to completely fall apart sort of country. And that, that's part of the sort of frisson. That's part of the excitement of their writing sometimes. Yeah, so he's there for more than 20 years. Now, you were remarking on the, the fact that he does give this great tour of Guangzhou, but I also like the way that he describes nature because he's obviously very close to it. So he's talking about insects, silkworms, ferns. Yes, and I find that interesting on the page. I mean, if you're one of these people, and I know that lots of you there in, in Hong Kong do this, and you go out in intense heat walking around mountains all weekend, which <laughs> is quite, quite unbelievable to me. But if you do that, you know, and you're into your flora and fauna and your botany, I mean, this is a really interesting read. And he also relates that to industries. I mean, he, when he talks about uh, Hainan, he talks a lot about Hoi Hao, which is really what we would now think of as Haiko. It's a district of Haiko, but at that time... This was the main town of Hainan. And, and it's fascinating uh, because, as we know, that Haiko is quite a big, sprawling city now, but quite, quite a buzzy place, touristy centre. But also Hainan, of course, is a big port and, of course, a massive tourism destination. But when he's there, it's really not much at all. A little bit of sugar cultivation and plants uh, and various other you know, offshoots of botany as their industries. It, it's a pretty undeveloped area of China at the time. So he's very good at relating the flora and the fauna and the botany and the national, natural conditions to what the trade is, which is sort of, you know, basically coconuts and sugar. When he arrives in Hong Kong, he's, he gives us a, a look at a government house. Um, he's also talking about words that we'd you perhaps use less these days, like coolies um, and the, the sedan chair bearers. So he's giving us an insight on Hong Kong. But I would say that his observations of Canton or uh, Guangzhou are more valuable 
than his quick entry into uh, to Hong Kong. He seems to move off quite quickly. Yes, and I think uh, one of the, one of the things all three of these books have is they all they all have really pretty much the same opening when it comes to mm. Hong Kong, and it's one that everybody does, which is the harbour. Yes. Right? So you you arrive by boat. And you arrive in the harbour. I mean, this sort of changed in the 1980s when everyone talked about landing at Kai Tak Airport and supposedly seeing people eating their noodles for dinner <laughs> in the flats opposite. They, they all have this. And there's this glittering harbour. And, of course, with the peak. And um, they talk about uh, what some refer to as um, the Bund uh, or, or what at the time was called the Prior but was, of course, the then waterfront of Hong Kong. And everyone has this same description. Loads and loads of sandpans buzzing around, ocean liners buzzing around, steep coastal steamships coming, Macau ferries coming, and so on. Pirates, <laughs> people yes. always talk about. Yeah, Everyone does it to the point that it sort of becomes a bit samey. And it's quite interesting. I was rereading, thinking of talking to you today. And although these are sort of, you know, a few years apart, Constance Gordon Cumming arrives that way and describes pretty much the same as, as, as B.C. Henry does, pretty much the same as Harry Hervey does another 20, 30 years later, pretty much actually as John le Carre does in The Honourable Schoolboy another 30 <laughs> or 40 years later than that, pretty much as everyone writing a novel about Hong Kong that is basically before the 1980s describes the harbour. All three writers, they're in a period from 1880s to the 1920s. Now, it's interesting because they, they're giving us an insight onto these uh, various areas, but they're also, they have the, the prejudice that they bring with them. So can you talk about, you know, the fact that these writers arrive with their own ideas? What do you still feel that they can offer the reader? Yes, and I think that's true. And I did a generic introduction to the books that tries to discuss this because it is something that we all think about a lot now uh, as readers, as academics, as scholars, as historians. And it's interesting. They come with a lot of prejudices of the time, which is, of course, to do with well, the case of, of, of the British and so on empire, but the Americans with a sort of sense of white superiority, white privilege. B.C. Henry, for instance, and, and Constance Gordon's coming is, is, is religious as well. They come with a certain certainty about their Christian religion and certain notions about anyone who has any other belief system, <laughs> which they naturally regard as inferior. So I think um, as long as we understand that we're seeing these things from a certain privilege, Constance Gordon's Cummings is a great one. She's at a house halfway up the peak looking down on this fire, right? She's not in the fire. Yes. She's in quite a privileged place where the fire is not going to reach her. Well, OK, so she describes it for us. I think what we need to focus on is the important thing, which is this is one of the we don't have that many you know, eyewitness accounts of this yes. fire. And if we want to understand what mid-levels may have looked like and what, why it looks like, the way it does now, it, it's kind of important to remember what happened at Christmas 1878. So I'm not she, sure that that's in the in the public consciousness. Very no, fast, no, so. no. I, I really don't think so. I mean, there was recently a book written on the Great Fire in 1878, but I don't think that um, I, I don't think it's well known. Um, interestingly, she describes it as as an area as much as she she could know it as a mixed area of, of Chinese shopkeepers and, of course, largely wooden houses, which is why the fire spreads so fast and jumps from house to house. She also gives us, you know, whenever there's a fire, there's always these kind of oddities of the fire, that it rages down one side of the street but not the other. The firemen, and, of course, they brought in soldiers and sailors who were garrisoned at the time, as well as um, local guild societies and friendship societies from, from the Chinese, came in. And in fact, they made the decision to sort of bulldoze very quickly, break down 
some of the wooden houses to try and create fire breaks to stop it from spreading. Because, of course, as, as people do know, there were lots of fires that happened in what is now sort of Kennedy Town and towards the, the east of Central. Even later, of course, when it was uh, more sort of squatter territory and shacks and things, shantytown tax. I mean, you know, the, the fire could have been a lot worse. Now a new feature was added to the scene. From the very point where the five streets met rose a tall column of fiery smoke with shooting tongues of flame. Another moment and the gentlemen had rushed off, some being members of the fire brigade and others having a very personal interest in the danger which might so quickly approach their own offices. The alarm bells rang on more and more wildly, sharp, jangling bells, which, once heard, could never be forgotten. So unlike any other peal is that affrighted clanging. No seasonable Christmas chimes, but an awful appeal, a far-reaching sound that should summon all the engines from every corner of the city, and all men enlisted in the brigades from their festivities. I'm talking with best-selling author Paul French, who's coming to Hong Kong and will be at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Paul and Blacksmith Books have just released the, the start of a series called China Revisited. We've got Harry Hervey, who later would become a very successful scriptwriter. With Harry Hervey arriving in China, and we get to read his Where Strange Gods Call, Harry Hervey's 1920s Hong Kong Macau and Canton Sojourns. The fact that he is this treatment writer later, what can you tell me about the way that he writes? Well, he is he is um, really heavy-handed on the prose. He's very descriptive. He had written some quite lush, I would say, novels from the United States, imagining French Indochina, imagining caravanserais crossing India in the Silk Road. Um, and so when he finally got to China, he was absolutely blown away by encountering it. He comes from America. So he comes across the Pacific and then to northern China first. So he spends time in colder, uh, more northerly climes of Tianjin, Beijing down to Shanghai and then comes into the tropical weather of, of Hong Kong. And this, of course, is, is thrilling in itself, although somewhat familiar to him because he comes from Savannah in Georgia. Whereas the Europeans tend to sort of come through Suez on the ships. And so they've had probably up to a couple of weeks of um, being warm by the time they get to Hong Kong. So they tend not to refer to the weather so much because they've been on a boat through the Red Sea and, you know, around Singapore and so on. So, so that, I think, is interesting. But the thing that's mostly interesting about him is he's highly, highly descriptive. I mean, he novelizes almost everything because that's what he is. He's a novelist. He's a screenwriter. And he's soaking it all up for atmosphere, which later on gets fed into, you know, his kind of novels, which are reasonably sensational. No one reads them now. Uh, a lot of good short stories, which, which aren't bad. And most importantly, he wrote the treatment, a very long treatment, about 50 pages for Shanghai Express. He didn't do the actual script for the film. But, you know, that film is basically based on his experiences of travelling by train in China. Where are you going from, 1880s onwards, would you say, with the, the writers that you're choosing? Yes, I mean, I, I went to um, Harry Hervey because of copyright laws. So he was writing in 1924, and I think when oh. he first came up with the idea a couple of years ago, he had just come out of copyright. So I think now we're on anything... 1926 and back is out of copyright. Um, so really, the Victorians, the Edwardians, through to the, the mid-1920s. And it gives us a nice spread. But ideally, someone that really shows us a world 
it's almost on the cusp of change, you know, that, that they're really getting a last glimpse of an old Hong Kong or an old Macau or an old Guangzhou or Hainan that, that doesn't exist anymore, but we can see slight traces of. It feels sort of familiar to us. Harry Hervey talks about going up Lindhurst Terrace. It was a flower market, and he talks about all of the flower stalls outside. And of course, it was a street of bordellos and brothels as well. You can see photos of it from then, and he's giving us a description of this familiar place and how it would have been 100 years ago. My thanks to Paul French talking there on books by Harry Hervey, Constance, Gordon Cumming and B.C. Henry, all part of a new China Revisited series. Paul will be joining me to talk more on this travel writing in southern China at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival on Sunday, March the 12th. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.